Good morning, everybody. You're very welcome to Cornerstone this morning. If you're visiting with us, please do stick around after for some tea and coffee. We're going to be continuing in our series in 1 Timothy. So today's reading is going to be from 1 Timothy, and it's going to be chapter 2. So if you'd like to follow along, the words will be in the screen behind me, or if you've got your Bible with you. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is God's Word. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is God's word. And let's pray before God or before John comes to speak to us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we gather once more here today. Lord, I pray that we would not come here with complacent hearts, but with hearts of gratitude, knowing that this time here together is sacred. That Lord, many of our brothers or sisters across the world who are in Christ meet under persecution and fear. So let us be found here to rejoice in the freedom that we have. And as your word encourages us today to pray for all people, especially those in positions of leadership. And we pray for those who are leading our country, Lord. God, we pray for wisdom. Father, we pray that they would lead in such a way that we could live lives of peace and that are godly. And God, we just thank you for this passage this morning. God, for the reminder that without Christ, Lord, that we are dead in our trespasses. And Lord, because he gave his life, he ransomed us from our sin, that we could walk in forgiveness and freedom. Lord, I thank you that as we look forward to Easter and Resurrection Sunday coming, up this month. 
Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be turned to the cross where we all find our forgiveness and our eternal peace with you. And Lord, I just pray for those here this morning who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. God, that whatever John has prepared that your Holy Spirit would take, God, that you would lift the veil from their eyes. The God, that we would all see the depth of our own sinfulness, but in a moment we would also see the riches of your mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would just take what John has prepared. Lord, help it to enlighten our hearts, lift our eyes to see the good news of your gospel, and that we would leave here this morning rejoicing in the fact that our names are written in heaven. Father, I pray for all our kids' leaders. I pray that, Father, through their teachings this morning, that our children would also come to know Jesus as their Savior. And that in all things, Father, that we would do it for your glory, Lord. So just come and be amongst us now, Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. morning everyone again. Uh, I'm sure <clears throat> by now you've realized uh, the, why it is apparent and, and why it's clear that I went to uh, the Genesis account to read uh, the story of creation as we began this morning and then over to Romans chapter 9 to those verses where Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God about that created order and about the significance of the created order? When God created man and woman, He made us the way that we are, with differences. Uh, he created man and woman uh, to be complementary. You see, the reality is sin did not bring diversified complementary roles into existence. God did. The differences we find between men and between women are not the result of sin. God didn't create uh, manhood and womanhood and then sin come into the world and we find these diversified complementary roles. That's not the way it happened. These diversified complementary roles were created by God in His created order before sin entered into the world. God, God ordained and fitted Adam to be a, a loving, caring, strong leader for his wife Eve. And before sin entered the world, God ordained and fitted Eve <clears throat> to be a partner who supported and honored his leadership. Both equally, and this is one other reason why I read from the created order in Genesis, both equally created in the image of God, both equal in their God-like personhood, but also different in their manhood and in their womanhood. The pattern that was set out in Genesis was God-ordained, and it was beautiful. They respected each other, they served each other, and complimented each other, and they enjoyed one another. 
In today's passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, what we'll see is Paul will address what both men should do in the local gathering and how women should act in the local gathering. There is an address to both. And we must remember as we read these words this morning that these are in the context of the local church. Paul is writing to Timothy, the young pastor, and he wants to outline the way that the church should be. Now, what I would say about these verses is this, that they are some of the most countercultural verses in Scripture. <clears throat> Why is that? It is because culture is doing its very best to abolish God's created design. Culture will tell us today that there is not only no difference between male and female, but it will also tell us that you can decide which you are, when you want to decide, how you want to decide, and you can do what you want. It will tell us that it's definitely not up to God, and it's up to us to decide. And we know that's happening. We see that happening in our culture around us. The unfortunate reality is this, is that it is also happening in the church. It is also happening in the church. This week I saw on, I can't remember if it was on Instagram or TikTok or something, a non-binary uh, priest in the Anglican church in England. So it is not just happening in culture. It is happening in the church where God's created design, God's created order is not only being compromised, but culture is endeavoring to abolish it. Abolish it. And so that's why these are some of the most countercultural verses in Scripture. But today I want to start where Paul starts in chapter 2, with a call to prayer. With a call to prayer. Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now that's, that's, that's good that we, we read that. First of all, Paul is saying, I urge you, young Timothy, pastor, this is what I want for the church this is what I want for your local context. I urge you that you pray. Now, we're all like, Captain Obvious, that's exactly what the church should do. We should pray. That's all well and good until you get to those few last couple of words in that first verse. If you've got a Bible, look at it there. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for who? All people. All people. For everyone. Now again, we need to remember the context of what Timothy is writing into. Timothy is writing into a church, onto a young pastor. He's giving him instructions about how the church should be run. And, and the problem in the church is that some people are, are distorting the truth. Some, and the way that they're distorting the truth is that they are saying that 
the gospel is only for certain individuals. And so that they are, they are proclaiming that the gospel message is, is exclusive to some individuals. And here we have the, the Apostle Paul correct that when he says, I want you to pray for who? All people. All people. The people who had, the, these people who were causing grief in the church had concerns about the law, which were misguided. They were in error. They thought that the gospel was only for this inner circle of people, these, these people who were doing it right or getting it right. And here Paul says, no, I want you to pray for everyone, all people. It is a matter of primary importance, young Timothy, that you understand and that you teach that we pray for everyone, not simply to those who, who are in our little inner circle. Not simply those who belong to our domain, but the, but the heart of God is beyond that. The heart of God is that we pray for all people. And then he gives a couple of examples to illustrate the point that he's making. First of all, then I urge you, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly, dignified in every way. Interesting, is it not, that Paul would go to kings and those in positions of authority. Why does he do that? Here's why he does it. Because, because those are the kinds of people that the church are most tempted to despise, to reject, to dismiss, and to abandon those who are in authority. It is absolutely staggering for me often to hear Christians despise and reject and abuse and abandon the people who God has sovereignly ordained, who are in authority over us. Where did we ever get the idea that it was okay to pray for some people, but not to pray for everyone? Paul here and in other places in Scripture, we know Paul is very concerned that the people pray for leadership in the country. And what was going on here in the context of Ephesus, where Timothy was, was people were going, well, you don't like the king, you don't like the emperor, don't pray for them. You don't like that person in authority, don't pray for them. And Paul is very much saying, no, you better understand something, young Timothy, you've got to teach the people to pray for them. We may not like those who are in authority over us, but we must pray for them. But why? Well, I think the biblical logic is fairly simple. 
We are to pray for the ones who are in authority over us because we are to submit to their authority. And if we don't pray for them, how can we expect them to govern well? Romans 13, I've quoted it before, Romans 13 verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which is from God. I do not know how we can read that verse and be not understand it. The authorities that exist over us are sovereignly placed over us by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has ordained. And those who do so bring judgment on themselves is what the Scripture says. And I don't think we've thought that out. I don't think we've thought it out anywhere near close enough. Instead of doing what Timothy hears, or Paul says to Timothy here in chapter 2, namely pray for those people, we think we can criticize them, we think we can malign them, we think we can go up against them, we think we can do this and that and the other. And, 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 and the Scripture, and God is very clear, what are we to do to those in, for those in authority? We are to pray for them. So what are we to do? I suggest to you, it is a priority for Cornerstone Church, just as, as Paul wrote to Timothy, and I'm going to make it specific to the context in Northern Ireland, pray. I urge you to pray for those who are in authority over us. Pray for our MLAs. Pray for the assembly. Pray pray, pray, because we are to submit to them. Because that's what God has called us to do. We are to pray for them. I'm called by the Word of God to pray. Right, moving on. We are to pray. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the, test, which is the testimony given at the proper time for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. Here again, Paul is simply doing what he's always done. He is reiterating this apostleship of his own. There seems to have been Paul, we talked about it in our home group a couple of weeks ago, Paul seems to have a bit of a chip on his shoulder about his own apostleship. There was question raised about Paul's apostleship. Was he really an apostle? Was he not an apostle? And Paul seems to be at pains to defend his apostleship often, and that's what he's doing here. He is defending his apostleship. He is defending his authority to give instruction to young Timothy. For I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Then Paul turns his attention to the gathering again. This. 
And he says this. He turns his attention first to the man. He says this. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Matthew Henry's commentary on this says this, Under the gospel, prayer is not confined to any one particular house of prayer, but men must pray everywhere. Basically what Paul is saying when he's writing to young Timothy here about men must pray everywhere, in every place, in every church. We must pray in charity without wrath or malice or anger toward any person. He's saying here, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Why does Paul say without anger or quarreling? He says it because the natural heart of man is towards anger and quarreling. And Paul says that cannot be the case in the gathered church. Who might ascend the hell of the Lord? Those with what? Clean hands and a pure heart. You cannot be coming in here, Paul says, and be angry with men and pray. You're dishonoring God if you do so. It is a natural propensity for men to be angry. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I'm going to make a few general sweeping generalizations this morning. You can, if anything I've discovered over the last few weeks is that when I get up here and speak, there's something happens in the air. I, I don't know what it is. But what comes out of my mouth and what lands on you sometimes is completely different. I don't know what happens. So we'll try and figure that out. It must be something in the air conditioning or the heating or something. I don't know what it is. But man's propensity, man's heart is towards anger and quarreling. And we're not to come in here and pray with anger or bitterness going on in our hearts. Paul says here, I desire that in every place men should pray. What Paul is doing here, and this is specifically for the men, as you can tell, is that Paul is calling the men to take the lead. Paul is calling the men to take the lead in the church. Historically, certainly over my existence, the reality is that men have often abdicated this responsibility. Men have often handed that responsibility over. Often because of anger, and often because of quarreling, ironically. But Paul's call to men here is to take up your responsibility and to lead. To lead. 
to be the man that you're called to be. To not abdicate responsibility. But to exercise what God has given you to do. Right. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, the emphasis shifts. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or with pearls or costly attire. Right. What we need to do this morning when we come to these verses is that we need to wade through a few difficulties. And the difficulties that we need to wade through are what is principle and what is contextual. What is principle and what is contextual? People have got into severe difficulties over the years by thinking either one, it is either all contextual or it's all principle. So let me, let, me, let me demonstrate what I mean. If someone were to think it was all contextual, well then these verses mean nothing for us today. Nothing. If it's all about the, 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 the context in Ephesus, what, what Pastor Timothy was facing, then these verses mean nothing for us today. If it's all principle, then not one of you ladies, I, I could go around the church probably right now, and if anybody was wearing pearls, I will banish you to the car park. Or has anyone got braided hair? Don't want to pick anybody out now, don't. But you would be banished to the car park. If it's all principle, then we, all, we, we take it literalistically, not literally, and we, we make the wrong applications. Some of it is principle. Some of it is cultural. What is the principle? So the principle that Paul is making here, the principle is about women's dress. And the principle is this. In the context of public worship, a woman's dress is to be marked by modesty, decency, and propriety. Modesty, decency, and propriety. That is how a woman is to dress in the context of the local church. That is principle. That is for all times, for all churches, in every place. That's principle. The second half of verse 9, he makes an application, and the application is made to the current situation that Timothy faces. And that is that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparently with modesty and not with braided hair. So there was at the time a hairstyle that you would know that you would spot that was immodest. And so when Paul, Paul writes here to Timothy and he says, and he mentions these things particularly, and he says, braided her, Timothy's going to, per- oh yeah, I get what you're saying, Paul. They have to be modest and they can't be like that. Alistair Begg, I listened to Alistair Begg this week and he, he said if you were to apply it to, to the 60s, for example, he would say, uh, Paul would write to the church and say, 
I appeal to the women, you're to be modest and you're not to turn up to church in a, in a miniskirt. Do you see what he's doing? You're to be modest, but you're not to turn up in something culturally that is immodest. And so he says, the principle is modesty. And the principle can be understood by paying careful attention and cross-referencing to what, what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. A similar point, he says that the woman, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as, and, and Peter references it, braided hair, and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. which is of great worth in God's sight, Peter says. So the principle is modesty. That principle is for every church, in every generation, in every place. And the application is to outward appearance. And so let me sum it up this way if I can, this part this way if I can. When women gather for public worship, they should not do so in a way that draws attention to themselves or distracts others. When women gather for public worship, they should not do so in a way that draws attention to themselves or distracts others. That is the principle. And that applies in Cornerstone Church today. One thing I would say is, notice what Paul says about the words where he says, costly attire. Peter uses similar words when he says, the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Something to take into consideration, I do think, is that when we come to worship, what, what Paul is saying and what Peter is saying is, don't come to worship in clothes that 90% of the church can't afford. Don't come to church in clothes that 90% of the church can't afford. Because what you're doing is you're becoming a stumbling block to brothers and sisters. Don't do it. Unless you can do it very discreetly. Do not come to church in costly attire. That's what Paul says. That's what Peter says. So, Modesty is the principle. Propriety is the principle. Decency is the principle. The outworking of that is that we do not come to a church gathering drawing attention to ourselves or are a distraction to others. Yeah, we good? Seems fairly clear. Yeah, we're good. Good stuff. Right. I do think I might need an armed guard to get out of the building at some point today, all right? But we're not just sure when that will come. Uh, right. Decency, modesty, decency, propriety, principle. How that works out? Cultural. So, but with moving on, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all 
submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's maybe at this point I should make for the door. But no, we'll not. We'll, 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 we'll go through it. Right. What I want to do is break this down because it needs to be broken down. All right. It needs to be. We need to take this in chunks. So I desire, where, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. What does quiet, what does let a woman learn quietly mean? Notice the word quiet is used two other times in this text. The word for quiet here, Heshua, is used in verse 2. If you go back to verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. All right? The word's used there. And this gives you the tone and the extent of the word that is being used. It does not refer to absolute silence. It does not refer to what that Paul is not saying women need to just keep their mouths shut. He's not saying that. What he's saying is he's giving a tone. Silence doesn't seem to be total. It's more like what we would call quietness of spirit. You can see that especially at the end of verse 12. The same word is used again. Paul has in mind by, by what he says, it's opposite. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be quiet. So what he's saying there in verse 12 is that this quietness is the opposite of exercising authority over a man. It is a demeanor. It is a quietness of spirit. Quietness does not mean not speaking, but it means not speaking in a way that compromises authority. So what sort of quietness does Paul have in mind here? It is the, quiet, it is the type of quietness that respects and honors the leadership that, of the men that God has called to oversee the church. Verse 11 says that in, in the quietness is in all submissiveness. In verse 12, it says the quiet is the opposite of that authority over men. And so it is in submissiveness. It is not total silence. So that's quietness. What does... When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, what does this teaching mean? So we've dealt with quietness. It is a, it is a quiet demeanor. It is a quiet, it is a submissive quietness to authority. What is teaching? I do not permit a woman to teach. And the answer to this is what we can do is look for other places where Paul talks about woman teaching. He is not, let me say, he is not permitting he is not forbidding teaching in all contexts. We need to be very clear about this. Paul is not forbidding teaching in all contexts. Just look at other examples in the Scriptures and we can see that. For example, in Titus 2.3, he says that older women are to teach younger women. They are to teach what is good and train younger women to love their husbands and their children. That's what he says in Titus. 
Another example is 2 Timothy 3, where Paul tells Timothy to remember those from whom he learned the Scriptures. Who did he learn the Scriptures from? Eunice and Lois, two women. Another example is in Acts when Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos. They took him aside and expounded the way to him more clearly. They taught him. And so Paul is not permitting or not forbidding teaching, women teaching in all contexts, but he certainly is forbidding teaching in some contexts. Again, is it, is it possible even to generalize then what Paul does have in mind here when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach? No, it's not. And I think the safest thing we can do when it comes to these verses is, is, is it doesn't finish with, I do not permit a woman to teach. If you look at it there, it doesn't finish there. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So we have to take those two things together. We have to take the teaching that, that Paul is, is forbidding and the authority over a man that Paul is forbidding. And when Paul says, I do, not per, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, he is talking about what? He is talking about the context of the local church. For many, many years, people have taken these verses out of context they are for the local church. They are not for politics. They are not for the school. They are not for the workplace. They are not for anywhere else. They are for the local church. So women can have authority over men in politics. Not a problem. Women can have authority over men in the context of the school or the university or the workplace. Not a problem, but not in the context of the local church. Paul is very clear. Paul is very clear. It is confined to the context of the local church. And this type of teaching that he is talking about is the doctrinal teaching of the church reserved for qualified elders. That's what he is talking about. I do not permit a woman to teach in that role. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. The authority is for the qualified elders. It's very, very clear. Right. Authority. What is this authority? As I say, the key that unlocks this whole thing is this very interesting observation. When you read, it is, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. And who has authority in the church? The elders have authority in the church. The elders have two basic responsibilities, and that is that they are to govern and they are to teach. That is the responsibility of the elders, to govern and to teach. You can see the qualifications, and we'll get to them in 1 Timothy 3. Let the elders who rule well, 1 Timothy 5 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's where we get those two responsibilities of governing and teaching. 
So this authority that Paul is talking about here is eldership. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man is the context of eldership. That's what he's talking about. Elder is authority, is servant authority. Elder leadership is servant leadership. So, quietness. It is a quietness of spirit that does not, it is submissive to leadership. Teaching is the big T, teaching of the holding doctrinal truth, teaching doctrinal truth that is reserved for who? The elders who have authority in the church. Now, the key to understanding that these verses are not contextual and that they are principle is where Paul appeals to for his reasoning. Because again, what we can do with a text like that where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, we can, what we would love to do there is some theological gymnastics and say that, oh, this is just for the context. This was just specifically for Paul's context. It's not. And here's why it's not. Where he appeals to for his reasoning. Where does Paul appeal to for his reasoning? He appeals to the creation order. Let me read it. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Here he appeals then to for his reasoning. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Someone once said, if Paul gives you a reason why a thing is a thing, don't look for another reason. Paul here is stating that this is outside of context, outside of culture. It is a creation ordinance thing. It is a creation order issue. It is not a contextual issue. This is for all churches in all places at all times. See, this is nothing to do with pragmatism. It has nothing to do with the culture of his day. It has nothing to do with being politically correct. It has everything to do with Paul's knowledge of the Scriptures. And primarily the first three chapters of the Bible. Folks, this is not some flippant secondary, unimportant issue. This issue that we're dealing with today is an authority of Scripture issue. It is an authority of Scripture issue. Either we believe the authority of Scripture or we don't. This doing away with, with roles and doing away with the biblically given complementarian roles used to be the realm of liberals. It used to be those who would deny the Bible. It used to be those who would say, oh, well, the Bible doesn't mean this, or it doesn't mean that, or it means something else. It's people, it was people who liked to interpret the Bible in light of the times that they lived in to accommodate the Bible to the culture of the day. 
but it is a biblical authority issue. It is a creation issue. And once we start to distort the order of creation, everything else goes awry. You set yourself on a trajectory that will take you down paths you don't want to go. So if we can't, and that's what Paul is saying. Paul is setting things in place. Paul is saying, I do not permit a woman to teach. Why? Because of the creation order. Not because of culture. Not because of what's going on in the church. Because of the creation order. Once you start to mess with that, things go wrong. Hence, we end up in the position where the Anglican church currently is. You mess with this, you get that. That's what Paul says. You mess with the creation order, you end up there. It is a creation order issue. It is an authority of Scripture issue. We either believe the Bible or we don't. So, And the last point, and and a very important point I want to make on this, for men and women who have a heart to minister, for men and women who have a heart to save souls, to heal broken lives, to resist evil, to meet needs, there are endless opportunities for you to do that. It is, there are endless opportunities for you to do that. Why would we focus on the one thing that God forbids us to do when we can be doing a million things that God allows us to do. There are a million opportunities to serve, a million opportunities for His kingdom, a million opportunities to teach. There are a million opportunities. But the role of elder, the authority in the church, is reserved for qualified men. To finish today, we come to this very, very straightforward verse, verse 15. A sarcasm, by the way, just in case you didn't pick it up. If you think it's straightforward, I would let you come up genuinely. Right. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing. Huh? What the blazes, Paul? Where did you come up with this? Right. Well, I'm not going to explain it, so let's pray. Uh, no, only joke, only joke, only joke, only joke. Only joke. Uh, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Really, there are three traditionally held views on, on what that means. Three traditionally held views. I don't have time to give you the three. I'm going to give you the one that I have landed on. If you want to know the three, ask somebody else, all right? All uh, right. No, if you want to know the three views, come and speak to me. We'll go through them. It's not a problem. The view that I have landed on is this. If you look at this verse, he appeals to creation order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. What way would the Savior come into the world? Through magic. 
No. Through appearing. No. Through childbearing. Through childbearing. The incarnate Savior of the world was born. The Savior of the world condescended to become a fetus. The Savior of the world came into the world through childbearing. And so Eve, Paul looks back at and says, she will be saved through a Savior who would come through childbearing. It's amazing, isn't it? To think that our Savior, Jesus, our precious Jesus, would choose to come into the world that way. To humble himself to come into the world that way. So that he might save sinners like us and redeem people like us. Let me pray first, and then we'll have communion together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us about the words that, that he has penned. Father, help us today to understand these words of yours are right. Help us to come under their authority. Help us to help us to submit to you. As Paul says in, in Romans 9, who are we to answer back to God? Who are we, the clay, to answer back to the one who has made us? Give us humble hearts. Give us a desire to love Jesus. And give us a desire to serve his body, the church. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.